When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Flowered Path. On this show, I'll be talking to author Maxim Furyk about his new book, Coal Region Hoodoo. Maxim covers a lot of strangeness from the coal region of Pennsylvania in his book. In our conversation, we will be talking about Catholic mysticism in the coal region, including an apparition of Pope John XXIII appearing to miners trapped in a cave-in, the doomed town of Centralia, supposedly cursed by a priest, Father Alphonsus Trebold, an exorcist called in to deal with the famous haunting, St. Teresa of Avila, and more. Maxim and I will both be speaking at Redland Community Library in Edders, Pennsylvania, at 1 p.m. on June 17, 2023. You can go to yorklibraries.org slash events or call 717-938-5599. Before we get to my talk with Maxim, I'd like to thank new patrons Camille Harmon, Sparrowfish, James Burke, and Elaine Wadrick. I'd also like to thank Jen McLaughlin for the generous donation. Patrons and donations help me continue to make The Flowered Path and bring you more content. All patrons get the regular episodes of The Flowered Path ad-free, often before they drop on the regular podcast feed. Rose and Orchid Tier patrons also get shout-outs on the show and extra content, including Petals and Thorns, the ongoing podcast within a podcast I make for patrons of The Flowered Path, and the occasional extra episode of The Flowered Path. Orchid Tier patrons also get monthly merch mailings. To check out all of the patron options and benefits, and to help me continue to make The Flowered Path, go to patreon.com slash thefloweredpath. You can also find a PayPal link if you want to make a one-time donation. Just click the support button 
at thefloweredpath.com and look for the PayPal button that says Donate. I'd like to welcome Maxim Furick to The Flowered Path. How are you doing tonight, Maxim? Hi, Tim. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me on your program. Looking forward to a nice conversation. So thanks again. This is great. Well, I've had you on the other podcast, Strange Familiars, a couple of times now. And I noticed our, our conversation sort of both times would, would sort of drift into this Catholic mysticism. And you told me you had done some presentations on it. I said, hey, come on over to The Flowered Path and we can kind of do a show dedicated more specifically to that and really explore those interests. So, thank you for doing this. Oh, absolutely. You know, and I think a lot of people, when they hear the word God, they start running away. You know, I mean, I'm not sure why, mm. <laughs> you know, but uh, this is exciting stuff. And I think this, the realm of the spiritual fits into, you know, the paranormal and the scientific. I mean, it's all the same thing. We just got to figure out, you know, the, the definitions and terms and just how all, the, all of this works. But, you know, we're talking about miracles and apparitions and exorcisms and all that, you know, so it's, it's exciting stuff. Stuff. You know, it's. A, I'm glad to be able to uh, read about it and write about it and talk about it. So, uh, and 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 this is great to be able to be on your show and to be able to articulate this for a group of listeners who I believe you know have a real vested interest in this in this uh, subject matter. Well, the two of your books I've read, Coal Region Hoodoo and Shepton Myth Miracle Music, this sort of Catholic mysticism plays a role in both books, uh, kind of a big role, honestly, and. Both books, you know, have their roots in this coal region. So, I know you grew up in the area. Do you grow up Catholic? And is Catholicism a big part of the culture of the coal region? Yeah, it is. You know, a lot of those miners were Roman Catholic. You know, a lot of those miners came over from England, Wales, Italy, Poland, you know, Slovakia, you know, those countries. So, a lot of them brought with them their their religion and also their superstition. So, that was a big part of the coal region. The other thing is, yeah, I was raised Greek Catholic. I went to St. Cyril and Methodius Greek Catholic Ukrainian Church. And one thing that, you know, I talk about in my book, Coleridge and Hoodoo, I lived right a couple doors down from Catherine Adamshak, and her son was Nick Adamshak, or Nick Adams. Nick was a pretty popular actor during the 60s. He had a program called The Rebel, and his claim to fame was that he was one of the actors in Rebel Without a, Without a Cause. Now, many... Hollywood gossip columnists and Hollywood researchers have claimed that Rebel Without a Cause was a cursed movie because one by one, the actors died in tragic deaths. For example, James Dean, and then Nick Adams, and then Sal Mineo, and then Natalie Wood. So it just seemed to be a curse on all these people and just a whole lot of other bizarre things. So uh, because Nick Adams was buried in Berwick, Pennsylvania, where I'm from, and also Berwick, Pennsylvania being the birthplace of Richard Sharp Shaver, you know, amazing stories in the Shaver mystery, I wanted to go and make sure that Nick Adams got his due. So we have a number of chapters on Nick Adams in the book. And of course, Nick Adams was... Greek Catholic, he was Ukrainian, just like me, and him and also Natalie Wood were, were Ukrainian. So they fit into this narrative and, you know, all part of that thing, you know, like, I don't know, it's just almost like six degrees of separation. You don't have to go very far, you know, to make connections here. There were quite a few Irish mining communities as well, weren't there? 
Correct. And Irish were hard workers, and the Irish were pretty much vilified. They were hated. They had, you know, signs, Irish need not apply. And for some, and I'm not exactly sure why, but I mean, the Irish, I mean, more than Italians and Polish and, and Slovaks and everybody else, I mean, the Irish seemed to get beat up and castigated more than anybody else. So, of course, they were able to organize and they got into, they were became judges and uh, police officers and they realized that in order to go and, you know, protect yourself, you need to go and have some power. And so they organized. They fit into the narrative, especially in Centralia. And Centralia, which is uh, in Columbia County, that's uh, noted as the cursed town. And what happened was there was a Roman Catholic priest, Father uh, Ignatius, who clay, who was beat up by the Mali Maguires. And the Mollies were, again, they were, some people claimed that they were, were mythological, that the Mali Maguires didn't really exist, that they were just a figment of the coal mining companies. But the Mali Maguires were, did exist. They uh, banded together for uh, better conditions in, in the mines. And the, the priest was beat up by a number of Molly Maguires, and he, he put a curse on Centralia, and he said at the end of the day, the only thing that's going to be left standing will be the, the church in Centralia. And what happened was around 1962, they were getting ready for a festival, and they decided to take the town's garbage and put it down in a coal mine and burn it. And what happened was that sparked the anthracite coal, and that has been raging and burning to, to this day. I mean, they still haven't been able to put it out. So it's just like an ongoing thing. It's been called the Devil's Fire. It's, you know, at one time, Centralia was the sixth most visited place in Pennsylvania. And a lot of the paranormal people would come there just to take a look at what was called Graffiti Highway. Mm -hmm. And that was a highway where all the kids would come and put their graffiti marks on it and everything. Now what they did was they put tons and tons of dirt on that and they bulldozed it. So Graffiti highway is just a thing of the past and the people don't come to Centralia like they used to but every time I went there I would see a ton of people from the Philadelphia area you know college students hmm. making the trek to Centralia just to check it out so it was pretty neat and Centralia is right in my backyard. I read recently that there's a pilgrimage that happens there I think every August to the Ukrainian Catholic Church there. Exactly. That church is that church is still standing. As far as the town of Centralia, there's only about I I understand it's maybe five families, five families that are still there. But as they die off, that'll be it. I mean, there was eminent domain. The uh, state of Pennsylvania bought out the town and relocated the people just because uh, there was toxic gases and, you know, it was just a horrible environment because of the fire. And then, of course, people couldn't just accept that and say, okay, there was a, a, a raging fire and we need to relocate. But a lot of people were saying there was a conspiracy. And because of all the tons and tons of billions of dollars of anthracite coal underneath Centralia, people are forcing people out for, I mean, I don't know for what, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. nobody's ever going to be mining for coal there. So, you know, yeah. but nonetheless, the conspiracy theories tend to pop up. And uh, do you have any ideas why? I mean, I have a couple of uh, conspiracy theories in the co-region hoodoo, but Tim, do you have any idea why conspiracies pop up? No specific reason. Anytime you tell someone they can't go somewhere, they're going to come out with conspiracy theories about it. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a man's need to understand, you know, our, our search for meaning. Mm-hmm. And uh, and if you can't figure it out, like even for the, the assassination of our beloved President John Kennedy in November of 1963, you know, I mean, we couldn't just accept the fact that he was killed, but there are countless, countless theories, conspiracy theories about other people being involved in his death, you know, the single bullet theory and uh, just so many things. I mean, we really don't know. I mean, we and we're still looking and people are still doing documentaries and writing books. I talk about the assassination of President John Kennedy because with the Shepton mine disaster of 1963, that took place in August of 63, it was the biggest story for the Associated Press for that year until Kennedy's assassination. So ah. so that surpassed the Shepton disaster of 63, which was for even for those folks who haven't heard of Shepton, it was a little patch town outside of Hazleton, and three men were trapped for two weeks, only two came out, and it was just an, a story with international attention, news uh, media people from the UK, from Germany, from Japan were there, and Shepton, when I was in researching Shepton, I found that it had paranormal elements of out-of-body experiences after-death experiences and near-death experiences, plus so much more. So Shepton is unique in the annals of mining disasters, and it's right here in northeastern Pennsylvania. So fascinating. And I believe in Coal Region Hoodoo, you said that it's just 15 miles from Centralia. Exactly. Yeah, they're, they're sort of like an epicenter. And in Coal Region Hoodoo, I talk about a lot of Berwick-based, uh, Berwick-centric things. Like, for example, Nick Adams was buried in Berwick. Richard Sharp Shaver, who was really huge in the 1940s, and he still is. Shaver is still big in ufology. I mean, the Shaver mysteries just won't go away. Yeah, Shaver, for those not familiar, he wrote a lot about um, beings inside the earth. Yep. The bureaus. Yeah, he claimed that he was captured by these creatures and held prisoner in these subterranean caves. But he wrote about it, and his publisher, Ray Palmer, Ray A. Palmer, or Rapp, would print these in amazing stories as true. Mm-hmm. So when the people were reading these accounts by Richard Sharp Shaver about being captured by these evil robots, people believe one, they believed that these were true. A lot of people did. They had Shaver mystery groups where people would get together and talk about this. And then the other thing, Richard Sharp Shaver, uh, we found out later, was schizophrenic. But prior to that, we found out that he heard voices. And people would get together and say, well, I hear voices too. So there was this group, almost like a support group, surrounding Richard Sharp Shaver. And we found out much later that he had been institutionalized for schizophrenia. And a lot of the stories that he wrote seemed to be, he seemed to be a champion pioneer for better conditions in uh, mental institutions, probably because some of the treatment that he had, probably shock treatment, which, which is something that they used quite a bit, used that extensively, only because shock treatment was a lot cheaper than using the chemicals, psychotropic meds, mm. like maybe melorel or Thorazine, which were popular at the time. So they used the shock treatment 
extensively, and that was very punitive. Flash forward to 2023, and shock treatment is the treatment du jour for people that suffer from depression. They do the shock, they wipe out those uh, those uh, recent memories, and then with uh, therapy and medication, they get get these people grounded and get them on their way. So shock treatment is not the punitive, you know, uh, tool that it was years ago, but it's some it's really sort of like a modern day treatment that is, that is effective. I believe they've refined it quite a bit since the old. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not like the old uh, black and white fifties movies. Yeah, yeah. Like Snake Pit and Asylum, Bedlam. Well, let's talk Shepton a little bit since we brought it up. This is an incredible story of well, initially three miners that get trapped in this mine collapse, and then have this amazing set of experiences, which include Pope John the Twenty Third. Yeah. One of my favorite characters, Pope John the Twenty Third, is such a, a controversial figure to this day mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in many, many ways. But the miners were trapped for those two weeks and they got out one by one. Davy Fallon, the older guy, told Hank Throne, Davy Fallon was 58, Throne was 28. And the older guy said, Hank, when we get topside, keep your mouth shut. Don't tell anybody what we saw. And he was referring to the uh, apparition of Pope John the Twenty Third. That Hank Throne was an atheist. He just knew Pope John the Twenty Third as the stranger. But as soon as Hank Throne got to the Hazelton General Hospital, and there were two separate trips by helicopters. So Throne went there first, and then Davy Fallon. But by the time Fallon got there, Throne had already been talking to the media. And again, the paparazzi were as prolific back in 1963 as they are in 2023. Mm-hmm. So Hank Throne, as soon, as soon as he was rescued and went topside, he passed out. He was very histrionic. They took him to the hospital, and they started to ask him questions. And he told them about the stranger. He told them about seeing Pope John the Twenty Third. told them about seeing golden cities and people sitting on these stairwells and the humanoid creatures and just a whole lot of bizarre stuff. Fallon had told him specifically, don't talk about this because they'll, they'll think we're crazy. They, they'll think we're mentally ill. So the paparazzi kept on asking him all these questions. But what happened was as soon as they got to the Hazelton General Hospital, there was a picture. Remember, this is 1963, a picture of Pope John the Twenty Third. Now, this was in August of 63. The Pope had passed away in June of 63. There was his picture there. Again, a lot of Roman Catholics in Hazelton and in northeastern Pennsylvania. And Hank Throne, the agnostic, the non-churchgoer, the non-believer, said, look, uh, Davy, you know, to Davy Fellow, look, there's the guy that we saw. There's the stranger. There's his picture. So he's pointing to this picture of Pope John the Twenty-Third that he was not familiar with because right. he didn't care. I mean, he, Hank Throne spent his lifetime in, in bar rooms, mm-hmm. you know. So anyway, after all this was said and done, Hank Throne founded a non-denominational church in Hazleton, and he stopped drinking, and he sort of mended his ways. And uh, there was a bit of a, what I would call a religious convergence. Mm-hmm. And, and even with Felon, Felon was talking about his faith, And he said that he was praying. He said, if you don't believe in God down there, you won't believe in him anywhere. 
And Felon said that if you don't believe in God, go through a thing like this. And he meant his two-week ordeal. Then you'll know there's a God. So when they were trapped there underground, Pope John the Twenty-Third appeared to them. He was there with them. And they both saw him. They both saw this apparition. They saw the image of Pope John the Twenty-Third. And in all three cases of miracles by Pope John the Twenty-Third, and I wanted to talk about this a little bit. All three of these miracles happened after Pope John XXIII had died. I was talking to a Roman Catholic nun about this, and, and I said, Sister, did you know that all three of these miracles happened after the Pope had died? She goes, well, of course. I said, what do you mean, well, of course? She goes, he died and went to heaven, and that's where he got his authority, and he was able to perform the miracle. And your listeners probably know that miracles, you know, are, are sort of difficult to explain. They transcend natural law, and they can't be explained by natural law. But it's sort of a contradiction to natural law. It's sort of a d divine operation. But it wasn't so much about Pope John the Twenty Third. But certainly he lived a life of piety, had a deep faith and devotion. He did good works. He was filled with God's grace. But that was just the beginning of it. It was God working through him to manifest those miracles. Maybe he was vetted. He was deemed worthy mm -hmm. of performing miracles. So it doesn't just happen to anybody. It's not happenstance or random. I mean, there's a, a gateway, price to pay, if you will. But that's uh, the price is just living a righteous life, you know, filled with God's grace. His appearance to these miners was one of the miracles that was noted at his canonization. Is that correct? Absolutely. Uh, and by a number of academics. Now, of course, these miracles, you know, a miracle, when the Pope was canonized in 2014, a number of uh, Vatican academics cited Shepton as one of the miracles. As a matter of fact, jo uh, Father Joseph Mary, who was the chaplain for EWTN, Eternal Word Television Network in Alabama, he was on there. You could still see the YouTube video, 2014, where Father uh, Joseph Mary is talking about the Shepton Mine disaster and felon and throne and talking about the Pope's miracle. So, you know, it's noted and recognized. It's documented in all three cases. If you look at the MO, the modus operandi, in all three cases, you know, Shepton and then the two medical miracles that Pope John XXIII performed in Italy, all three times the Pope would just be standing there sort of, in, in, sort of towards the back with his arms folded, almost as though giving them a sign of hope, a sign to relax, everything's going to be okay. Again, what was this? I mean, you know, in my book, I call it a miracle. You know, I'm wondering if this was an, an apparition, a guardian angel in the form of an apparition, a spirit guide, but a sign that you will be saved, that you will be all right. Again, we don't know, but you know, call it a miracle because certainly lives were saved, at least two lives were saved. And with Coleridge and Hoodoo, I just wanted to say, just as far as what's you know definition, Hoodoo pertain, pertains to either a blessing or a curse. And when you take a look at Shepton, here's two miners that seem to have received the blessing. They were rescued from that horrible pet. And then there was the third miner, Louis Bova. And to this day, nobody knows what happened to him. And even to this day, there are allegations, horrific, unsubstantiated allegations that he was cannibalized. 
So we don't know. We never found any uh, any evidence of that, you know, bones, blood, anything. And, uh, and to this day, we don't know. But it remains part of that Shepton mythology, that Shepton mystery. When the Pope appeared in the mine, Felon recognized him. Felon did, yeah. Felon was a was a devout Catholic who went to church and prayed. One reason I think that they survived. Well, several reasons. One, it was the Felon and Throne had a symbiotic relationship. It was almost like a parent-child relationship. So Felon kept on telling Throne, the Throne who was twenty-eight, to keep your wits about you. We can get through this thing. So you know he gave did that. He encouraged him and, and talked him through this. The other thing, they had a bit of a mantra. They would dig, tap, and pray. They would dig. They had shovels. They would dig, try to find their way out. They would tap so that the rescue team, wherever they were, the rescue party would be able to hear them. And then they would pray. And with St. Teresa of Avila, who I have a chapter in co-region Hoodoo on St. Teresa of Avila, who was a Rome 14th century Spanish mystic. I mean, she was just such a wonderful, just a cool woman. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed researching her. But she believed that through parent prayer and meditation, we could reach states of ecstasy and rapture and a thing that she identified as flight of the soul. Now, that flight of the soul was experienced by Day Felon and Hank Throne when they had their numerous out-of-body experiences. They went through the mine, they were up there and they could look down and see the rescue party. They could see those thousands of people that was comprised by the National Guard, military, Salvation Army, onlookers, the rescue team, just on and on and on. The media, I mean, massive amounts of media. So they saw that and they talked about that. And Felon said that it happened with him twice. Throne said that it happened to him once. And just another amazing thing. So out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences experienced by the miners, and the afterlife experience by Pope John the Twenty-Third. His presence was manifested months after his death. And again, this is what he did with his other two miracles. Felon had the presence of mind, though, not to tell Throne that it was... Like he recognized him as Pope John the Twenty Third, but he had the presence of mind. Says, "I'm not going to tell him because he didn't want to freak him out." Exactly. That's exactly the way. Yeah, he didn't want to freak him out. Again, at 58 years of age, Dave Felon was was our John Wayne. He was just a strong, courageous guy. He would speak his mind, and as a matter of fact. When he was rescued, he blasted the rescue team for taking so long to rescue him. He said it should have been faster. So he became the pariah, and he had to walk that back. I mean, he had to go and apologize for you know his uh, lack of appreciation and gratitude for them saving his life. But I mean, he would do that. And but Throne, Throne was very impetuous and vulnerable, and Felon did not want to go and say, "Look, there's the stranger. There's Pope John the Twenty Third. He was just afraid that Throne would be able to handle it mm-hmm. down in that shaft. And by the way, for, for the listeners, where they were trapped, I mean, it kept on changing because they would have other mine falls, you know, collapses while they were down there. But there were parts of the mine where they could actually have to crawl, other parts where they could actually stand and walk. And it's been, there's, they believe that the place where they were trapped might have been as big as a football field. But again, the terrain changed, you know, every so often. So wow. Just an amazing thing. And, you know, and, and again, I tried to write this in psychological terms. What would it be like to be trapped 
330 feet down below, you know, crawling on your hands and knees, sucking in particles of coal dust, having nothing to eat or drink, and no hope of being rescued. And that had to be the most damaging, the most heartbreaking thing that, you know, that what if we never get rescued? Mm. And just an amazing thing. So, Well, like Felon said, if you're not going to find God there, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. Like, uh, I think that would have been the only possible thing that would have gotten me through. Yep. Dave Felon talked about that a lot. I mean, he, he talked about his strong faith. He talked about God. And, you know, and, uh, it's almost as though the his ordeal in Shepton sort of, I'm trying, to, I'm, I'm trying to think of a word, but it just, not guaranteed, but it did something to us. It, it off- validated all of his beliefs. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything that he believed in, you know, his uh, going to church and praying and everything else. I mean, it was just validated by this, by this wonderful miracle. And that's what it was. It was a miracle. It was something that, uh, you know, looking at the scientific, you know, realm, the, the natural laws, it just wouldn't happen. This is something that's just out. It's an outlier. You know, it's just amazing that they were saved and they used unique rescue technique and then after that, I mean, how important is Shepton? I mean, nobody knows that the Shepton rescue technology, they saved people in Kew Creek, Pennsylvania. And then in 2010, and there was a movie called The 33, Shepton rescue technology from 1963 saved those 33 minor, miners in that Chilean copper mine disaster. Amazing. Shepton saved those guys. And uh, there's been three books and I don't know how many, and at least one motion picture about that. And Shepton does not, the Shepton rescue team does not seem to get its due. Because, I mean, I read all this stuff and I mean, nobody's saying, yeah, thanks to the, you know, the rescue team of Shepton, you know, the people in Chile can walk around. But uh, the allegations of cannibalism in Shepton, you know, interesting thing in 2010 in Chile, they were running out of food rations, those, those 33 guys, and they were trapped there for a long time. They all had a ration of a tablespoon of tuna fish, a couple of crackers and a little bit of milk. And they knew that at a certain point, they were going to run out of food. So in the journals, in the two books that were written about the Chilean copper mine disaster, they started to say, well, maybe we were going to have to resort to cannibalism. And there was a little, and this was in documented in these books. And one of the the gallows humor, the dark humor, was that everybody there of the thirty three was from Chile, except for one guy, and he was from Uruguay. And according to the one writer, he said, "Well, if anybody's going to get it, you know, get, get cannibalized, it would be the guy from Uruguay." Oh, so that geez. was the, that was the the little dark humor joke. But luckily, yeah. that, that never happened. But. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Swiss psychiatrist Dr. Kubler-Ross, who wrote a lot on death and dying, she proclaimed Shepton was proof of life after death. And what was she referring to? 
Yeah, well, that's interesting because there was another guy that sort of inserted himself into this, and this was Ed Conrad. Ed Conrad was an old newspaper guy from Shenandoah, you know, Shendo, we call it, and he befriended Davy Fallon, and he really uh, loved the story, you know, the Shepton mythology. So what he did was this immediately. He tape recorded Davy Fallon. He had his uh, his comments notarized. He took Davy Fallon down to Virginia to meet Dr. Bruce Grayson from the University of Virginia. Grayson was one of the leading experts on near-death experiences. And then he took Fallon down to meet Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And she interviewed him. And in both cases, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross believed that Shep was a prime example of life after death. And she was referring to Pope John Twenty-Third, who had died in June. And Shepton, of course, was in, in August. And then Dr. Bruce Grayson was saying the same thing, that this was a, an example of a near death experience with with the miners and what they saw. So what Ed Conrad was able to, to do, he was able to take something that might have been ostensibly just a mythology, you know, a, a something that hint, hinted at a paranormal mythology. He was able to go and connect the Shepton people with experts who were able to go and say, wait a second, there's something there, something that's authentic and something that's valid. And so that's what Ed Conrad did. And that's the part that Ed Conrad played in this thing. He brought it a little bit closer to the scientific realm by doing what he did. You have in Cold Region Hoodoo an entire chapter on St. Teresa of Avila. Yep. Basically connecting the experiences of these miners to her sort of mystical experiences. It's a very interesting connection you made. How did you find St. Teresa of Avila and how did you make that, that connection? Yeah, I was, let me see. Uh, that's a good question. I have to go back to, you know, the Shepton book was 2015, but uh, they talked about out-of-body experiences. And at some point, I, I was, when I was re- researching, I uh, came across St. Teresa of Avila and she talked about that. And uh, she was a 14th century Spanish mystic she believed that through prayer and meditation, and she talked about her four four stages of mystical prayer. Mm-hmm. And she said that they consisted of meditation, and then there was one, the prayer of the quiet, and then, then there was union, and then there was rapture. And she claimed that by prayer and meditation, by reaching the state of rapture, we can have a flight of the soul, which is an out-of-body experience. So I was able to go and put two and two together. She was... An interesting individual, you know, she decided to become a Catholic during the 14th century. Now, this was probably the worst time to become a Catholic because this was when Martin Luther's Protestant Reformation was was sweeping across Europe. And uh, there was the expulsion of Muslims and Jews from Spain. There was the horrendous, a horrific Spanish Inquisition where people were tortured and killed. And uh, just very uh, brutal. But uh, St. Teresa, she, she's an interesting individual. She called herself the Wicked Girl. And uh, she was a prolific writer, but she called herself a Wicked Girl only because she had uh, human thoughts. You know, whatever they were. I mean, I'm sure they might have been thoughts of lust. I don't know. 
point, but she called herself a wicked girl because she used makeup and wore earrings and, you know, all this. And, and she felt that she needed to be more devout. And later on, she felt that she was actually married to Christ. That's what she said. She was married to Christ. But she was just an interesting, pious individual. There are, we talk about the flight of the soul. We talk about the out-of-body experiences by Felon and Throne and Shepton. There's been numerous accounts and I have some of those documented in co-region hoodoo, but accounts where she actually, it was described that she actually levitated and that the nuns had to hold her down. So this, yeah. has been, this has been documented numerous times. You know, when we talk about some of the Indian fakers, these guys that, that lay on these spiked, these beds of nails mm-hmm. and can do that and that actually levitate, you know on a carpet it's maybe i don't know it may be a similar thing but it's you know it's an out-of-body thing it's a physical levitation thing and saint Teresa of avila the 14th century spanish mystic apparently uh, was able to do that i mentioned when we talked for strange familiars how much her writing on meditation has helped me because uh i struggle with distraction i guess everyone does to a point but uh her writings about it, the only thing I compare, can compare it to is my band one time we opened for, there's a psychedelic band from the UK called the Bevis Frond and the guitarist is fantastic. He's one of the best rock guitarists I've ever seen live anywhere. Fantastic guitar player and we were sharing the, the backstage with them and uh, I was very nervous. I had horrible stage fright and I would get very sick before every performance and uh, I, I went to use the bathroom and, and he this brilliant guitarist from this other band, he says, uh, hey, don't be long in there. I get sick before every performance. And I turned around and said, what? I said, you? And he's like, oh, yeah, every time, every time. And something about him telling me that calmed me down so much because I thought if this guy who is that talented gets stage fright, then maybe it's not such a bad thing. And there was something about the idea that he had that and he struggled with that really calmed me down about my own stage fright. It was the same thing reading St. Teresa of Avila is struggling with distractions. I thought, well, if this great saint struggled with these distractions like this, and maybe it's not such a bad thing that I'm struggling with distractions. Her writings have helped me so much, and and I haven't even dug in that much. I need to buy her books and dig further because I just have, you know, some books on uh, the rosary and so forth where they they talk about her writings. But I'm very much looking forward to exploring the saint more. Yeah, and and I'll do that as well. I guess maybe because you're doing it and and we could discuss it down the line, but because I'm interested in her and I just like, I'm really in love with St. Teresa of Avil. I just like what she represents and everything. One thing I do want to point out, she talks about evil and the devil. And she claims that the devil takes more pains to bring about the downfall of a soul receiving graces from God in prayer than in less favored souls. She's talking about clergy and priests and all those people that have dedicated their lives. So the devil takes more joy in bringing those people down. Mm. And she said this, this is St. Teresa of Avila, but the devil comes with his artful wiles. This is the demonic temptation, the seduction, his artful wiles. And under the color of doing good, sets about undermining it in trivial ways and working it in practices which, so he gives it to understand, are not wrong. Little by little, he darkens its understanding and weakens its will and causes its self-love to increase in one way or another. He begins to withdraw it from the love of God and persuade to indulge in its own wishes. That's a little bit hard to comprehend because it's like sort of like old 
English or old style, but she's just saying that the devil tempts us and seduces us and takes us away from God by giving us maybe that of the ego or of the flesh. So she wrote a lot about that. I recognize that as well. Unfortunately, in myself, I know when I stumble, it usually has to do with pride or, you know, some form of uh, selfishness. Yeah. Well, I was a drug and alcohol counselor. And, you know, we, we talk about AA and the 12 steps and all that. And we talk about not perfection, you know, but just like a, a progress, you know, to mm-hmm. just to take it one day at a time. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, every day is different. You know, I mean, it's, you know, right now I'm with Coleridge and Hoodoo. I'm just I can't tell you how filled with joy I am because the book has been well received and is doing well. And I'm getting a lot of response from it. And as a writer, I mean, we need that. We need the world to say, listen, we've read your, your your text and we like it or this is what we think. I mean, just to get that feedback. So a lot of times us writers tend to live in a vacuum because sometimes we just don't get that response. So, sure. you know, so, you know, we, we all need that affirmation and, you know, and we're all human. And the only thing I would say about, you know, everybody listening to this, I mean, if you have a toolbox that's filled with a whole lot of things, like whether it's prayer, meditation, friends, a phone call, exercise, playing your music, listening to Van Morrison, whatever it is, you know, when the bad days come, when the dark days come, if you could reach into that toolbox and find something to help you get through those dark days, those dark times, then you're doing good. And if you continue to fill that toolbox with something, and you know, Tim, maybe me and you have filled our toolbox, you know, part of it with St. Teresa of Avila. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's kind of cool. Your book, Cole Reads and Hoodoo, it has this blend of the spiritual and the supernatural. That's pretty interesting. How do you, you know, kind of manage that? Yeah, I was I, I was taking a chance. And first of all, I'm so glad to be on your show and to talk about this. But I didn't know if writing about Roman Catholic mysticism and Pope John the 23rd and uh, St. Teresa of Avila, I didn't know if that was going to be able to go over if my readers would actually accept that. But I thought about it and I thought, yes, this deserves to be there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's part of it. So the, the, the spiritual and the paranormal fits into this whole thing, you know, that somehow slots into the scientific. It's all part of the same thing. You know, when we talk about miracles, when we talk about St. Teresa of Avila levitating, I mean, that is no less awesome than seeing a, U- a UFO or, Absolutely. A, or a UAP or or seeing a uh, Bigfoot creature. I mean, it's the same, the same thing of wonder, that same thing of awe, you know. So, you know, as human beings, whenever something like that happens, we celebrate it. You know, it just adds to our human experience. So, I'm glad that I was able to do that. And I think that I, I'm uh, just so proud that I was able to go and write about something of a spiritual nature. And just maybe, just maybe one or two people will start reading about Pope John the Twenty-Third or St. Teresa of Avila, you know, uh, or, or the Shmuro haunting and, you know, the uh, the priests that were involved in that. So, you know, if, if, and if they do, I think then that's great. Then, you know, we've opened up, you know, their their minds and their, you know, and their insights to, to something more. So Mm -hmm. that's, you know. So you said that the paranormal found you, that you didn't go looking for it. So how did that happen? Yeah, and it, and that exactly that's exactly what happened. I'm a rock journalist, so I wrote a book about the Jordan Brothers. You know, they were the first band to release "Give Me Some Lovin'," and they were big in the area, probably down your way, like Schoolkill, Bucks, Burks, 
Lancaster counties, and they were they were the biggest band going for for a number of decades. So that was my first book, and that just blew it up. I mean, it was just like tremendous. Only because the Jordan brothers had such a demographic group, you know, of fans. I wrote a book on Generation X and the connection between grunge rock and uh, heroin. And then I was researching, I was writing a rock mythology, and I just wanted to connect the 1971 song Timothy, which was about cannibalism in a mine shaft, three guys trapped, only two came out, what happened to Timothy? And I wanted to connect Timothy the song with the Shepton mine disaster. And uh, that's what it was going to be, just a rock and roll book, you know, about cannibalism and a pop song. What happened was as I was in, uh, researching Shepton, all of these things came up, you know, Pope John the 23rd, the humanoid creatures, the golden cities, the, you know, allegedly near-death experiences, you know, the miners seeing their ancestors sitting on these steps and just, I mean, all kinds of just weird stuff, weird stuff. So when I wrote Shepton, the myth, miracle, and uh, music, you know, that was how the paranormal found me. I mean, I wasn't really, didn't know anything about Shepton until I started to read their accounts. And it was, Shepton was a bigger story than just about a pop song, you know, connecting with, uh, you know, with, with the mind disaster. Mm-hmm. It was huge. It was huge. And I don't know of any, any mind disaster that's as huge. I wanted to call this book The Shepton Convergence because of the convergence of themes, you know. And on the back of the book, I call it the Shepton mythology. So, And that's what it is. It's just a mythology that, you know, we try to understand. And, and it's something that won't go away. But the paranormal found me because with that book, I started to get invited on all these podcasts and, you know, Art Bell's uh, Midnight in the Desert which was an interesting one because I was interviewed by Heather Wade, and that's because Art Bell's life was being threatened. He was undercover. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that was, I want to say, I think it was 2018, maybe 2019, but Heather Wade, I remember it was like 12 o'clock, pretty sure it was 12 o'clock my time, Eastern Standard Time, and it was like a three-hour Oh, that was grueling. That <laughs> was like a three-hour presentation. I've done some of those for Coast to Coast uh, AM, yeah, where I've just yeah, been on all night. Yeah. I get off the phone at five in the morning or something. Uh, but anyway, that was but that was that. So so that was the so then the paranormal found me. Then I found an audience, and I found that there, there are people that are really interested in this. So Coal Region Hoodoo continued with that that journey, and I just thought, okay, I'm going to go and I'll address Shepton and Pope John the Twenty Third a little bit more, but deeper and wider. So I did that. And then, of course, added the uh, chapter on uh, St. Teresa of Avila. One thing that I did a couple years ago, there were in, in Drifton, Pennsylvania, there was the Sophia Cox Foundation. It was a mansion that the very altruistic coal mining companies, you know, the, the people that owned the Eckley Mining Village, they created this. And so they would do programs there. So they invited me there. And we did a program called Roman Catholic Mysticism. And I talked about miracles and apparitions. And I talked about Pope John the 23rd. And it was just amazing because a lot of Roman Catholics, you know, hunger for this information. But a lot of times the church won't talk about it because a lot of times people that talk about these things like I'm doing tonight, a lot of times these people are sort of mentally imbalanced and they have another agenda. Mm-hmm. And so the church sort of stays away from some of these themes, I think, just to keep from being embarrassed. So, but I can, I can do that. I mean, I don't speak for the church, but I do speak with 
reverence and with respect. And so that's, uh, you know, pretty much where I'm coming from. But yeah, the paranormal found me and grabbed me and then spun me around. And, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, to the, I mean, I just can't believe it, but everything worked out pretty good. So I like doing what I'm doing. And I was myself as a paranormal researcher, but I felt you know, after a while, that that was just a little bit too too pompous. And I'm not a researcher. I'm a writer. I'm an author. So I call myself a paranormal author. Because, you know, I don't go into these houses looking for ghosts or demons. I don't, I'm not a ghost hunter. I'm just a, a researcher and more of an academic than anything else. You, at some point, got to meet Ed and Lorraine Warren, who are very famous Catholic demonologists, ghost hunters. I don't know what people would want to call them. I know they were involved in several different hauntings and accounts of uh, demonic infestations and so forth. How did you end up meeting them? Well, they were on a 15-city tour, and they had co-written The the Haunted. There was a book from 1988, The Haunted, One Family's Nightmare. So it was written by Robert Curran, and uh, he worked for the Sunday Independent. And at one point, I was working for the Sunday Independent. I was their uh, Columbia County reporter. And then Robert Curran, Ed and Lorraine Warren, and Jack and Janet Schmurl were all involved in writing that. But Ed and Lorraine were at, in Jim Thorpe. So I wrote a letter to the uh, Victorian Theater, asked permission to do an interview. So I hung out with them. I took these wonderful pictures that I included a number of them in, in my book. We kept up a correspondence. They lived in Connecticut. They were um, Roman Catholic demonologists. They lived in, I want to say it was Warren, Connecticut. But for some reason, Monroe, Connecticut also is popping up. But anyway, it's one of those towns. But I would call them up every so often doing some uh, research haunting and, and demonology and Lorraine had a pet rooster so you could hear the pet rooster in the house and they were just lovely people and very helpful and what's interesting with the parallel world between Ed and Lorraine Warren and Pope John the 23rd they were loved and hated Pope John the 23rd was the one who gave us Vatican II mm-hmm. and that's where the, he tried to modernize the church and allow churches to say mass in Latin uh, languages other than Latin, a lot of people, a lot of Catholics rebelled against that. They thought that this was a step backward. They wanted to keep the tradition. So Pope John the 23rd to this day is either loved and praised for being progressive and bringing the church into, you know, modernizing the church, and other people just feel that, they, they, you know, they, they demonize him. They just hate mm-hmm. what he did to the church. Same thing with Ed and Lorraine Warren. They were the most popular uh, demonologist. The Conjuring franchise, seven movies, uh, The Conjuring, uh, Conjuring 2, Annabelle, Annabelle Comes Home, Conjuring 3, The Devil Made Me Do It, seven motion pictures that brought in $2 billion worth of sales, demonstrating that, you know, internationally, the world has a real fascination for the Warrens and their and their work. But a lot of people felt, some people, their critics feel, that they were hoaxers, that they were putting on hoaxes with the Schmurl haunting and with Amityville and all the other ones. I don't believe that. I believe that they strongly believed in a in a demonic realm, a realm that was uh, that could be infested with demonic spirits. What, and was, Ed talked, what was the Smurl haunting? Okay, the Smurl haunting took place in West Pittston, Pennsylvania. That was in the 80s. And what happened was um, there were the Schmurl family heard howls and uh, pig grunts, and uh, there were fires. Things would burn 
appliances. Jack Schmurl claimed that he was raped by a succubus, a female demon. The uh, Catholic Church in Luzerne County was very much interested in this, and they were very receptive, and they were very supportive. They would send priests there to the Schmurl house in West Pittston to spend the night to see if there was anything that was happening, if they could hear anything. They would send in their exorcist. Every diocese has their own exorcist, so they would send in these exorcists, Roman Catholic priests, and they couldn't get the job done. So Bishop James Timlin decided that he was going to have to go outside of the parish. So he contacted Father Elf Francis Trebolt. Trebolt was a minister at St. Venture University, and that was in a tiny little town, Allegheny, New York, right on the Pennsylvania border. And Trebolt was the right guy for the job. He was taught a course called Religion and the Paranormal, and he was really interested in the the paranormal and the occult. His students nicknamed him Spooks. He did try. Now, he was able to go and get the job done in uh, the Schmurl haunting, but the one that he tried, there was a a famous haunted house called the Hinsdale House in uh, New York. And he tried to perform an exorcism, and he failed. But he wrote this. This is from Father uh, Alphonsus Trebold. Quote, some, and this was about the Hinsdale House, some ground is just bad. No one knows why. So just leave as soon as you can and take only your things with you. Don't discuss your plans inside the house. This place is just a hole to hell. Mm-hmm. And that was the Hinsdale House circa 1974. And then in the 80s, he came to West Pittston and he was able to go and exercise the demons out of that home. But it took him four times to do that. Wow. So, so that was Father Alphonsus Trebolt and uh, just another incredible individual. But uh, it was interesting when I came across that quote about some ground is just bad. Yeah. I mean, it's possessed. Yeah. Just stay away, you know. So, have so you, he, go ahead. Have you personally had any paranormal experiences? Well, two things. One, you know, I'm, I'm a Vietnam veteran. I was a radarman aboard the USS Constellation, and I have seen numerous UFOs. And these are solid, tangible contacts, faster and more maneuverable than anything we have or I think any other country has. And, you know, flash forward to 2020 and the Pentagon says that, you know, that 3% of the things that we see, these uh, UAPs, used to be unidentified aerial phenomenon, now unidentified anomalous phenomenon. Mm-hmm. They're saying that 3% of these uh, can't be explained and they may be, we don't know, but they may be extraterrestrial. So that's one thing that I saw that I, you know, I believe is, uh, you know, is, is true. I mean, they were, you know, not reflections of uh, marsh gas or ducks or anything else or uh, reflections of Venus. It, they were solid things. The other thing, uh, as a college student, as a foolish college student, would play around with seances. Mm-hmm. And I know the uh, one time we did a seance and I was uh, just terrified terrified of what was happening. And uh, so I'll never do that again. I just think that, uh, you know, I'd rather not dabble in in the dark side. I, you know, whenever people ask me, I mean, I just caution them about dabbling with tarot cards, Ouija boards, seances, even fortune tellers. I mean, I just stay away. Mm -hmm. I just think that could be a portal, a gateway to something, you know, something dark 
and evil. Yes. And, and, and yes, I believe in uh, that evil exists. I believe that the devil exists and that the devil wants us to think that he or she is just a fantasy, just a figment of our imagination. Mm-hmm. Is it real? The one exorcist, the one uh, Russian Orthodox exorcist over in Elysburg says that the power of the devil is great, but the power of God is stronger. And when you read St. Teresa of Avila, she talks about holy water, you know, and people talk about the crucifix. And maybe that might be a good thing just to have something like that, just as a reminder, you know, that, you know, maybe as a reminder that God is on our side or God is there if we summon him. I'm not sure, but I mean, you know, it may be some symbolic, but it's a good, pure symbol. And there's nothing wrong with surrounding yourself with those symbols. And uh, I mean, look at, for example, look at like maybe the Mexican culture. And, you know, when you look at their cemeteries and all that they do, the what they do at the graves, you know, to give, to celebrate the death of their loved ones and, you know, all that symbology. I mean, I, I think it's good. I think it's powerful and it, it's, it's uh, respectful. So. Mm-hmm. We talked about this a little bit on Strange Familiars, and I'm pretty sure we're going to have the same answer to this, but uh, I imagine your advice for those who are interested in learning more about the occult and about this stuff, it's going to be similar to mine. What I generally say, and you, you can add to this at will, is if you can, if you're interested in it and you can read about it and stop there or listen to stories on podcasts and stop there, that's my recommendation. Just enjoy the stories and don't get involved with it. For me, my journey through the paranormal led me back to the church. So, it had a very, what I view as a a positive result of seeing all these incredible things and experiencing all these incredible things and talking to these people who have seen and experienced all these incredible things sort of pointed me to the saints and the incredible things that, that were happening for them. And I saw this connection there and it brought me back to the church. But I also know it doesn't always go that way and it can go a much darker way. My advice to people is if you can just read about it and just read stories and, and, you know, listen to podcasts and don't go any further, that is my absolute recommendation. I'm sure your thoughts are similar, but if you have anything to add to that, please do. No, I, I agree with you. But, you know, it's almost like silly season with uh, all the ghost hunters. There's all these young people that want to go out hunting for ghosts and they go into these alleged haunted houses. And I don't know. I mean, you know, I think their passion may, you know, cloud their judgment. And, you know, I don't know a whole lot about it, but I know that it's happening a lot. Mm-hmm. A lot of doing this. And, you know, I agree with you. I mean, just like keep a healthy distance and, you know, and and, and protect yourself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and don't for a second, you know, think that this is that, you know, the, the, that this is foolish talk. I mean, evil does exist. And, you know, it's out there. And, mm-hmm. and it's- just be, be aware. It's funny you mentioned holy water. I keep a little bottle of holy water with me whenever I go on anything paranormal, anything, uh, you know, like this. It's always in my pocket and constantly in my pocket. I don't leave the house without my rosary. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. When you told me about your Catholicism, I mean, this was a couple of podcasts back. I mean, like it brought me joy. It was good to hear that. It was like a positive message. It was like a person that that found his his way, you know, that maybe yeah. you were, you know, I mean, it was it was a good positive thing to say. And it's good for one human being to hear that from another human being. So, I mean, you know, again, thanks for sharing that. I mean, on a personal note, it it was significant to me. Your newest book is called Coal Region Hoodoo. Paranormal Tales from Inside the Pit. Where can people purchase it? Well, certainly on Amazon.com. 
They seem to have taken over a huge segment of the literary world. So Amazon.com will have the book. Also, if somebody would want a autographed copy, you could contact me at www.maximfurek.com, and it's M-A-X-I-M-F-U-R-E-K.com. So just contact me there, and we could talk, and we could go and uh, get you a, a copy of Coleridge and Hoodoo. But if uh, you know, you're in the area, Tim and I are going to be in uh, Edders, Pennsylvania on uh, Saturday. What is that? The 17th? Yes. 17th. Have a program at one o'clock. So uh, hope to see you there. Yes, we will be giving a talk on various paranormal topics. I think you, you'll just kind of be going over some stories from your book. And I'm going to give the audience a choice what they want to hear me talk about. I'll bring a couple different subjects to talk about. So we'll each be giving a talk and then we'll hang out. We'll sign our books if people want. That's at Redland Community Library, 70 Newberry Commons, Edders, Pennsylvania, 17319. You can go to yorklibraries.org slash events to register. It's free, but I think they do want people to register. They just want to know how many people are coming. Right, yeah. And their phone number is 717-938-5599. That's this coming Saturday, June 17th, 1 p.m. Looking forward to it, Maxim. I'll see you there. Yeah, Timothy, looking forward to it too. Looking forward to uh, seeing you again. And thank you so so much for the uh, wonderful conversation tonight. I hope your listeners found it of significance, and that would be great if they did. So, Thanks for stopping by the Flower Path. Even though we didn't have a news segment this time, I want to thank the news writers, Sarah and Kevin, patrons and friends of the show. Please like and subscribe to The Flowered Path wherever you are listening. If you are inclined to leave a nice review, that will help as well. The Flowered Path is on YouTube, so please subscribe to our channel there. You can find it by going to youtube.com slash at sign the flowered path 6395. I don't know why they put those numbers after the name, but again, I guess that's one of the mysteries of YouTube. And no matter where you listen, if you like what you hear, please share the episodes with your friends and on social media. You can find The Flowered Path on Facebook, facebook.com slash The Flowered Path, on Instagram at The Flowered Path, and on the web at thefloweredpath.com. on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Say big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.